Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Shivana Musa, welcoming you to the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jan Lemnitzer about his new book, Power, Law, and the End of Privateering. The book is the result of extensive archival research, which analyzes the British approach to neutral rights in the Crimean War, the tenuous relationship between the US and international law, and, and in particular, how this was addressed by Europeans during the American Civil War, and Bismarck's threat of, quote, violent redemption during the Franco-German War of 1870 to 1871. All of this unveils a crucial understanding of the 19th century history of international law. Our guest, Dr. Jan Lemnitzer, is a lecturer and fellow in history at Oxford University, and was previously the director of studies for the Changing Character of War Research Project. So without further ado, let's interview our guest. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us, Jan, here at the uh, network about your new book. Um, well, thanks for the invitation, Shivana. Very, uh, very uh, honoured to uh, yeah present my new book. Right. Well, I think uh, we should get into the first question of the day. Um, in terms of how the book first came to be, I think the listeners would really like to know what prompted you to write it. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it's, it's a long story, and it really goes back to a, a moot court competition in international law that I was talked into uh, joining. And um, that was much more intense than I anticipated, and I ended up spending six months working extremely hard on matters of maritime international law. And uh, at the time, I was also looking for a topic for a, for a master thesis in history, and I thought I wanted to. I only knew I wanted to do the 19th century, and I already also knew that um, no other German historian or any historian had ever spent that much effort looking into matters of maritime law. So I thought, given all the trade that was going on and, and the interactions in the 19th century, there must be an interesting topic there. And um, in my year in in Oxford, I asked for a tuition on 19th century maritime law, and they managed to organise it. And, um, well, one tutor just asked me to say, okay, look at every 19th century uh, maritime law treaty and come back in two weeks. <laughs> and I came back and I said, well, um, I've looked at everyone I could find and they're all boring with one exception because they're all very much standard um, bilateral trade treaties. And then there's this one big thing which has only four articles, none of which I understood. But the uh, preamble said this was about preserving world peace and it was signed by all great powers of the age. So I presented this to my tutor and said, what is this Declaration of Paris thing? What is this about? And he just came back with a big smile and said, well, that's the one we all don't really understand. Yeah, and then that was sealed for me. That, then I knew this is what I wanted to do. Wow. And how 
many years was the book in, in terms of uh, writing it? And was it quite a uh, stressful period or was it quite uh, interesting? What, what was the process for you? Well, the process was very lengthy. I mean, it's uh, I, I wrote, uh, I ended up writing a master thesis about it in, in Heidelberg University mm-hmm. um, and ended up going to a Bremen State Archive right. uh, because they, they uh, part of the chapter is a, is an unknown campaign where the little state of Bremen tried to, uh, you know, measure up to Britain and change international law in their favor. And they, they got surprisingly far. And I discovered their campaigning archive and all the contemporary propaganda literature. And that suddenly gave me an insight as to what this was about. Right. And so I could work from there. And then I took it to uh, the London School of Economics, where I spent four years writing a PhD on this Declaration of Paris and just sort of sorting it out once and for all, going to all the major archives, spending a lot of time in the United States, um, France, Germany, uh, Netherlands, going to places where no one had gone before to look for archival documentation on this. And in, in, in many cases, you know, you have to do these compulsory interviews at archives at the beginning and they say, okay, so what do you hope to find here? And I explained it to them and just, just got sort of these vacant looks and people thinking, I, I don't think we own material like this. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that actually, because it was so important at the time, it has all been put together in nice files that could be harvested really easy. It's easily. It's just that nobody had done it before. Well, well it sounds uh, like it was a very exciting process, uh, going somewhere that no one's been before, as you say. Um, in terms of the actual book itself, of course, we've said it's called Power, Law, and the End of Privateering. Now, why do you think the relationship between power and law is so rarely explored? Mm, I think there's two main reasons for that. Um, The first reason is a widespread, rather cynical attitude to international law. Um, And it's both on the uh, right and the left wing of the uh, political spectrum that people subscribe to the idea that might makes right – but they tend to mean two different things by that. Sort of on the on the political right, especially in the in the United States, people think if you're powerful, you basically do what you want, and there's nothing much the the rest of the world can do about it if they're not as powerful as you are. And that's how the world works. Um, and sort of more on the uh, left wing of the uh, or, or liberal wing of the political spectrum, it's the idea that power allows you to write the rules. So international law is the tool of the powerful to uh, to oppress the less powerful. Um, the problem with that interpretation, or both interpretations, is that sort of the power gives you uh, gives you uh, right argument doesn't really explain why so many states spend so much effort uh, on international law and pay so much people so much money um, to uh, look after it for them. And the uh, power allows you to write the rules argument doesn't really explain why powerful states picked a system that gives uh, small states so much say, both in the creation and the enforcement of norms. So um, the uh, the argument I came up with is the idea of international law as house rules of uh, the international community, um, as rules that 
govern shared spaces where we constantly interact. And if we were, if we lived in sort of a, a Hobbesian world where every standoff is decided by power, you know, nothing would get done. I mean, uh, the reason why we don't live in a Hobbesian world is that it would be a real pain. Mm-hmm. And it's very inefficient if you want to do business across borders. And the, the example I've, I've used in the book is like a condominium where everyone owns their own apartment and is sort of sovereign in their own space. But everyone has a shared interest in house rules because you have shared spaces in the building and uh, there's this potential of uh, constantly annoying each other and creating disputes. And so people will, will agree to house rules and will enforce them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, that you can't have open fires in uh, shared spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. The uh, second big reason why it's not done very often is that um, once you get into it, you need to master the detail. And that can get very difficult, and uh, few people have that level of training, um, especially because the sources are often created in part of a you know, a contemporary propaganda battle as to what is international law on a particular point. So the sources constantly try to mislead you. Uh, and you have to see through the struggles over competing principles and see whether someone is uh, summarizing the law or trying to fool you. Um, and because these questions about how the world works, how the international system is organized, they tend to be asked by people in the international relations. Uh, these scholars often lack the uh, skills on the history side and on the legal side to actually um, come up with persuasive research that looks at it thoroughly. And uh, sort of having the training on both the history and the legal side, I just took the liberty of uh, nicking my research mm-hmm. questions from, from the IR literature. Right. Okay. I mean, um, this book certainly fills that whole, as you would say, uh, in terms of digging into this relationship between power and law. And in particular, I want to point to something that you mention in your introduction, uh, mm-hmm. where you say that your book actually details how the first global norms on the laws of war were created and enforced. Now, I'm going to ask you a bit of a big question here, uh, and it sort of goes to the crux of what you write uh, in your book quite frankly, groundbreaking book um, on how your book uh, does this and and how do you actually integrate then these ideas of power and law into it? Well, big question. Yes. (laughs) So I'll I'll split it straight away into uh, norm creation and norm enforcement and start with norm creation and look at the uh, genesis of the uh, Declaration of Paris. I mean, what, what this thing actually is and then talk about what, what this means on a, on, a, on a grander scale as for uh, how we create international law. Um, it all started with a temporary solution for the, uh, for the Crimean War in 1854, because this was the first time that England and France were fighting a joint war. So they had joint naval squadrons um, confronting the Russians. The problem with that was that for centuries, um, Britain and France had held to competing interpretations of maritime law. So they had very different rules as to what happens if um, 
a vessel a, a vessel of war meets say um, a Dutch neutral vessel that has Russian cargo on board. So the, the French and the British would deal with that problem in an entirely different way. Um, and they realized that uh, this would not be very popular with the wider trading world at large and uh, create lots of disputes. So they decided to um, combine their approaches for the duration of the war and take the most liberal aspects of uh, both principles so I don't want to go into the detail, but it would basically mean that in this case, the uh, Dutch trader would be free to carry his Russian goods unless unless there were sort of arms and ammunition. Um, and so a liberal principle benefiting neutral trade that Britain had for centuries tried to prevent was suddenly implemented by Britain. Um, simply because they could not have uh, enforced this in a joint war with France. Now, at this moment, the United States uh, sees, sees an opportunity to uh, get these, this liberal compromise that is for the duration of the war into the rule book of the law of nations. Um, and they want to bind Britain to it now that they've agreed to it in a, in a formal arrangement. And they come up with a really innovative idea. Because they start with a treaty with Russia and uh, they suggest a new idea to the Russians and uh, say, well, what about if we do away with all these uh, cumbersome standard procedures for ratification and just call upon every state in the world to join this treaty and affirm these principles as international law by a simple accession de declaration? Yeah? And every state that makes this declaration ipso facto becomes a treaty party with everyone else who has made this declaration in the past or in the future. And that, that was radical new, radical and new. Um, and uh, this attempt failed because uh, Britain and France put lots of effort into uh, dissuading others from joining this treaty and saying, well, there's a war going on and, uh, you know, be careful. Um, but the uh, the danger that the uh, that the Americans would try again after the war remained, um, and so what happens is that the French combine the idea of creating new rules by treaty by a treaty that is open to everyone and where everyone can join, with the dignity and the uh, recognized lawmaking powers of a grand European peace congress. So when the Crimean War ends. Um, and they've done the peace deal, they stay together for another two weeks and come up with uh, an other ideas to discuss, such as arbitration. But the most important one is the moment when suddenly the British and the French delegates stand up and say, why don't we have a, have a treaty on maritime law and uh, a ban on privateering? And the ban of privateering is crucial here because that is the sweetener for Britain to accept this uh, new liberal regime that gives neutrals so much more scope for trading in wartime um, and makes it so much harder for a big naval power to uh, pursue them. And the reason why Britain accepts that is twofold. I mean, some are liberals and they believe in a world where international trade will lead to global prosperity and peace. I mean, these are the heydays of, of the Manchester School. Um but there's also some people who think the real value of this is that we will get a ban of privateering 
And because we start with this major Congress and all the other states will join because they want the liberal neutral rights, um, that means privateering will become unviable. Now, in the entire lit literature, scanned as it is on this field, people thought, well, this privateering ban isn't really important. This, this is a medieval right. This is a relic. Uh, it has no real relevance to the 19th century anymore, and that's why they ended without further ado. And what I found out is that um, it's actually the opposite. Um, Actually, Britain is on the brink of war with the United States in 1856, as they would be again in 1861, and they are very concerned about privateering and have been for the even in the Crimean War because their fear is that the um, that the U.S. merchant navy, which is by now the second largest in the world, will convert their merchant vessels into privateers and attack British trade across the globe everywhere. And that means that even the Royal Navy would not be big enough to protect all this commerce. And that means insurance rates would soar and make a lot of the trade that keeps Britain uh, in business and profitable and uh, give the exchequer a great income and duties would simply disappear. And a similar effect happened at the very beginning of the Crimean War just because there were rumors that Americans might sign up as Russian privateers. Yeah? So in a war with Britain, um, this effect would be rather dramatic because a lot of American, the Americans threaten quite openly and talk about a thousand privateers coming up for a British trade in the first year. So Britain discovers that it has a strategic interest in getting privateering banned. Uh, they become very interested in this new method to create international law instantly. And, um, This uh, solves an old problem from when uh, positivism started to codify international, like positivist thinkers started to codify international law and say, we need to go back from these old books that are effectively philosophy and just look at what states actually do. And we need to show for something to be a norm of international law that is based on the two conditions of state practice, states consistently do it, and opinion juris. States don't do it as a courtesy or, or, or for some other reason. They do it because they believe they are bound by law. And this new standard is very good if you have proven it for a norm because then there's much less dispute about whether this is international law. The problem with that approach is, is that it takes a very long time to prove this, especially opinion juris or that a state believes something is law. Um, And at a time of uh, rapid uh, commercial globalization, especially after 1850, this became a problem. And the problem was solved in 1856 with the Declaration of Paris because what they had invented in this uh, package deal over neutral rights and a ban of privateering is what lawyers now call the multilateral lawmaking treaty. You know, states come together in one document – and try to get the vast majority of the world's states to sign up and say, this is law and our signature is under it. And suddenly, proving opinion juris and state practice becomes child's play. Yeah? And as, as it happened with the Declaration of Paris, where the vast majority of states um, signed up in weeks and months, 
Yeah, you could have almost instant international law. And that was a breakthrough. And that is relevant because this is precisely um, how we create new international law if we decide that it's necessary. Um, moving now on into the enforcement part. Um, there, the very relevant uh, problem is the position of the United States. Because when the Declaration of Paris um, reaches the newspapers of the U.S. East Coast, um, they feel rather taken aback and they think they've been tricked. And suddenly they are asked to um, sign up to the neutral rights they've always campaigned for, but also agree that uh, their most valuable strategic weapon in case of a conflict with Britain should be thrown away. And they are vociferous. They try everything to stop this. Um, and so the interesting question is, um, can they succeed? Or rather, can the majority of the states succeed in uh, banning something that powerful countries like the United States of America really want to have? And the uh, litmus test here came in the, uh, in the U.S. Civil War, where ironically it was the uh, Confederacy that used privateering because the North had the Navy and the Confederacy did not. Uh, and the North suddenly decided that they wanted to join the Declaration of Paris as soon as possible. And the other states decided that they would rather not want that because they didn't want to get embroiled in the uh, U.S. Civil War and have to chase Confederate privateers. And they accepted these privateers as legal because neither the Confederacy nor the U.S. had ever signed the Declaration of Paris. So the really interesting thing here is why Confederate privateering goes out of business after only a year. And they are around in 1862, but not afterwards. And that is because the signatories of the Declaration of Paris accept the principle that if you've banned privateering for yourself, you also close all your ports to privateers. And that means that the Confederates can't use the Caribbean ports that belong to um, France, the Netherlands, Denmark, Britain, and so on, that they had counted on. And um, the neutral ports don't let them in. Their own ports are blockaded, and they all convert to become blockade runners. And um, that is the reason why privateering ends, and uh, the Red Butler character in Gone with the Wind is a blockade runner and not a privateer. Okay. And um, the, um, the important thing here for the historian is to show that this actually works. And um, states enforce international law, partly by um, ganging up and um, removing the logistical basis of, a, of an activity that they want banned, or they threaten war against a state that wants to violate a norm that is important to them. And here the Civil War is another very good example um, because there's not just the threat of war over the Trent affair, which is rather well known when um, there's a neutral rights dispute about uh, what is happening on a, on, a, on a British ship that is boarded by the U.S. Navy. Um, there's also an actual threat of war when the United States decide that um, – following the international rules on how to conduct a blockade of the South is actually really cumbersome because there's 3,500 miles of coastline to patrol. And so it would be much, much nicer if these rules didn't apply. 
And so they come up with the idea that they can actually declare all southern ports to no longer be ports of entry for international trade under domestic U.S. customs legislation. And so any merchant coming in is then violating domestic U.S. law. And uh, the Congress passes the act. Um, but the response by the Europeans is very clear. They just write in and say this is just an obvious scam to get out of uh, the requirements of international law. And we will not accept this and we will protect the, the rights of, our, tra of our, our traders in this case to, to trade with the South by force if you don't have a blockade under international law. And uh, Lincoln backed down. Um, And uh, another example that I'm that I'm using is the uh, Franco-German War in in 1870-71, where historians have always concentrated on the land campaign. I mean, with some legitimacy because that actually decided the war. But there was also a global trade war and a global war at sea, where the French used their superior navy to disrupt German trade everywhere in the world. And um, this is a good way to show the difference between sort of states that are in the zone where international diplomacy works and states that have not yet entered it. So if you look at the activities of Prussian diplomats in Latin America, like Brazil or Argentina or uh, on the fringes of Europe in Greece, they succeed in limiting French freedom of action. They get the local governments to confront the French Navy and make them stick to the rules of how to conduct warfare and what they can do in neutral ports and what they cannot do. Um, when the Prussians try to do that in China, it does not work at all um, because the Chinese government of the day just not understand the concept of neutrality or, or international law. Um, and they just don't understand it. And so unlike, for example, in the Japanese ports, The French Navy has complete freedom of action in Chinese waters. Um, the problem of successful enforcement like this is that it leaves only the tiniest of traces in the archives. I mean, successful enforcement can consist of a couple of letters in, in files that no one would look at normally. Um, whereas unsuccessful enforcement of international law tends to become, you know, well-known international history. Uh, and we all know about it. So our idea of how well international law works is consistently skewed towards failure. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the best successful enforcement is almost invisible. Mm -hmm. um, and the cases where enforcement fails and doesn't work, uh, these are very visible indeed. Right. I mean, it's, it's clear from what you've just outlined the value of the work that you've done. And you started to talk about it as you ended your sentence there on how it's relevant to the present day and present day international law. But in your own words, and maybe going into it uh, with a little bit more detail, what do you think the Uh, academic or even non-academic can learn from your historical analysis with respect to the present day. Um, how is it enlightening us? Well, how, how am I enlightening the world? Well, that's a very good question. Um, what I've tried to do in, my, in, my, uh, in, in this uh, sort of modest book is to do two things, really. Um, the first is 
to give a better understanding of how international law works in practice. Yeah? To, to give an idea of how successful enforcement looks like, that there's a community behind it, and how this community enforcing international norms came about. Um, and that is the second main point, namely that this is linked to um, what, we, what we now call the first wave of globalization, um, beginning from roughly 1850, um, where international trade explodes, international passenger numbers explode, emigration explodes. And the world becomes a much, much more global space in a very short period of time. And what the Declaration of Paris is, it's the blueprint on how you regulate and control something like this with the means of the 19th century. Um, and that is, you, you have a conference, you agree on a certain convention on a set of rules, and then you ask everyone else who was not at that conference to sign up. And this is done repeatedly. And uh, after, shortly after 1856, you have um, two or three, sometimes four major international treaties passed every year. And they start to cover all sorts of things. They start to cover uh, humanitarian rights in, in wartime. They start to cover um, the world postal system. They start to cover international communication. Um, submarine cables, um, all these sorts of important things um, that are suddenly regulated on a global basis. And what is happening is that if you have a community of states that are agreeing two, three, four major new international treaties every year, then in the space of a generation, the role of international law changes. Suddenly, whereas before 1856, you have a couple of textbooks and a couple of agreed principles, by the end of the 19th century, you have dozens and dozens of recognized codified treaties with very detailed rules um, that keep the world running. And um, this, is, uh, this is how effectively um, not just uh, the world coped with globalization, it's also how the world made this um, continuing trade globalization possible because suddenly you had comparable or similar rules in very disparate uh, areas of the world, even, even in areas where, where you, you wouldn't really expect it at the time. But the reach was actually global, especially towards the very end of the 19th century when not just Japan but also China and, and the whole East Asian region come in and really form what we would now call the, um, uh, the, the international community. Now, if you have something like that, and we still do, um, then suddenly it's not just an international norm that needs to be protected. It's the entire network. It's the entire system of how things are done that needs to be protected. Um, and um, if you can uh, get more and more states on board instead of fighting them um, by giving them a voice in how the norms are created to ensure you have a global reach, that's a very sensible thing to do for a great power, and that's precisely what happened. And that's why when we come to the world of the um, Hague Peace Conferences, you have almost every state in the world represented. Yeah? Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly states like Persia have equal voting rights on, um, on, on sort of these, these norm-making uh, sessions. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, and, and that is something that, that 
hasn't been been recognized that much in, in in the wider field especially sort of if you go out of sort of specialist global history or, or legal history um and the the other thing that I'm, I'm talking about at the very end of the book is um if we have a system that is based on community enforcement and sort of states ganging up together and going to the one state that defies the rules and say well if you do that you have to confront all of us um, what happens if the international community breaks down? And and that is my approach to explaining why um, we have such a such a detailed system of international law that then falls down so spectacularly in at the beginning of the First World War, and once more at the beginning of the Second World War. If um, if states collectively decide that they no longer live in an uh, international community, but uh, that the system has broken down, then the whole system falls back on just reciprocity alone. And the lesson is that does not work very well. Um, and if the sense of international community goes, so does international law. Um, and we, we enter this, this Hobbesian world mm-hmm. um, that, that I've mentioned before. Um, so the interesting question for today, I mean, if you, especially if you look at contemporary crisis like in, say, say Ukraine, is how can international law or international diplomacy contribute or help to make sure that the norms are enforced without the sense of international community going? Because the lesson of the past here clearly is that if that happens, um, that's not a good thing for anyone concerned. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to bring out is that um, something that is not really mentioned, especially by sort of cynics of international law who say, well, the world wars are where we really see that it's all about power. And this is uh, how you how you make real history. And um, they tend to ignore that the winners of global conflicts, the leaders who emerged victorious from this Hobbesian world, um, what they always want to do immediately is have a big conference and create a world that is regulated much more tightly and much more comprehensively than anything before the big conflict. So that happens in 1815 at the Congress of Vienna, when all st- European states, including France, are invited to create an order that makes sure that the chaos of the Napoleonic Wars never returns. Um, after the First World War, you end up with the League of Nations and uh, a totally different scale of ambition for global community and regulation. Um, and after the Second World War, what happens is that uh, states of the world sit down in uh, San Francisco and try to create something they call United Nations, which they insist has to have much, much more power and authority than the League of Nations ever had. And I think these these two uh, processes of the experience of the Hobbesian world and the desire to create a better regulated one are, are very much linked. Mm-hmm. And I think that this unique uh, approach that you've uh, got in the book with reference to power and law is definitely something that I want to highlight again, uh, because it's certainly not something... Uh, as you've already said, that books actually deal with, whether it's a historian, whether it's a lawyer, I think they tend to separate the two quite distinctly. And, and one thing that I did 
uh, find extremely novel was this sort of intertwinement of power and law that you quite clearly highlight. Um, and, and of course, is quite relevant for today as well when we, when we make those, uh, connections, both in terms of continuities and discontinuities, of course. So, um, I, I want to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed listening from the horse's mouth, uh, <laughs> about a book which I actually thoroughly enjoyed reading. And I think that any listener that decides to pick up the book will thoroughly enjoy reading it too. So I highly recommend it. Um, so I, again, I want to, to thank you. Very grateful to have you here at the network. And I hope you enjoyed uh, talking about your book with us too. Yes, I, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, I can assure readers that I've uh, spent much sweat and many, many hours in trying to explain the complex detail of international law that I had to include as easily and persuasively and accessible as possible. Um, because as obscure as this sometimes may be, none of this is unfathomable. And I've tried to explain it in, in a couple of, of, of easy sentences so that absolutely everyone can follow. You don't need a law degree to read this book. Um, and uh, what I've tried to do is really get the idea out of the way that um, international law is something sterile and only for lawyers um, and that it is somehow separate from politics and international affairs. And it is not and it has never been. It has never been a depoliticized thing. And so if we look at the world today and find that, um, well, there seems to be a lot of affairs where rules of international law and power politics seem to be tangled up, my message is uh, it was ever thus. And uh, yeah, we need to deal with it. Well, with those words, thank you very much. Thank you, Shavana. 